Lord, I just think where you said your word is alive and active and how it pierces. It pierces right to our heart. What do we need to learn from this tonight? To not walk out of this room being the same, but to be different in you, deeper in you, on fire for you, passionate for you. Lead and guide us and let your word speak in all ways in your name. Amen. The reason I wanted you to go to Hebrews chapter 11 is we're going to make multiple references to this one verse. Take a look at Hebrews with me here in chapter 11. We'll start in verse 1. It says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. We're going to talk about faith. We'll talk about faith a lot tonight. So I want you to understand what the definition of faith is according to the Bible. Things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. If you can see it, then it's not faith. That's why we walk by faith, not by sight. I don't know how many times over the years people have come up to me and said, If the Lord could just show me, I'd be willing to do it. Well, then that's not faith. Because the Lord is showing you. That's why Abraham is so exalted in the Old Testament. Because so much of his life was built on faith. He went where he did not know where he was going. And he would still be willing to be obedient. If you're willing to do whatever God tells you to do, as soon as he shows you all the details and explains it to you, you're not walking in faith. So God wants us to trust him to walk in faith. Take a look at two. For by it the elders obtained a good testimony. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. I absolutely love studying out creation. I love studying out creation science. And I love the discussion here on God and how old the earth is. And I believe in a young earth. And I just love studying this out. But you have to remember... It's not my job to go prove God's creation because in verse 3 it says, by faith we understand. And I think sometimes as Christians we try too hard to prove the existence of God. Can you imagine serving and following a God that you had to prove to people that he existed? That's not a very big God. My God is big enough that he says in Romans chapter 1, creation is enough evidence to prove that I exist. I'm so thankful it's not my God-given responsibility to go prove to a non-believing world that God exists. He takes care of that himself. But in verse 3 it says, by faith we're supposed to understand this. But I really wanted to do is get down to verse 6. But without faith it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Please look at that verse one more time with me. Without faith it's impossible to please him. If you do not have faith you cannot please God. You must come to God believing that He is and that He rewards those who diligently seek Him. So look at everything right here. He wants me to believe that He exists and He wants me to seek Him. And that's how I please God. I don't know about you. I want to please God. So when I find a verse that says, this is how God is pleased, then this is what I want to do. And what I see right here is I must believe that He is and I must seek Him. And what we're going to see here in our study in Mark here this evening is this idea of seeking God in faith. So with that introduction, because we're going to come back to Hebrews eleven six a lot. If you want to keep your hand marked there or put something there, that's fine. But jump back now to Mark chapter 6, please. Mark 6. It says in Mark 6, verse 1, Then he went out from there and came to his own country, and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many hearing him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what wisdom is this which is given him that such mighty works are performed by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? So they were offended at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own country, among his own relatives, in his own house. Now he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. 
And he marveled because of their unbelief. Then he went about the villages in a circuit teaching. All right, a little bit of background here in verse 1. It says he's going to his own country. His own country would be Nazareth. If you have a map on the back of your Bible, what you'll see is Nazareth is to the west of Galilee. It's about 70 miles up from Jerusalem. I think it's important to know these distances because a lot of times we read in the Bible where they went from Nazareth to Jerusalem. And it makes it sound like they just jumped in the car and did a little 10-minute drive. It's a 70-mile walk. We're talking days here. And so this is kind of neat to kind of give you this picture of how often Jesus, just walking with his disciples from town to town, you can just imagine the different ministries he would have. You can imagine the different conversations he would have. You know, that's what's interesting. It says at the end of the book of John about how there's so much more that Jesus did that was not recorded. Because you'd have these days of traveling to and from, I'm assuming, of talking and ministering and just sharing different things. So, about 70 miles north of Jerusalem here. Please remember Jesus' little life story. We know he was born in Bethlehem. As he was born in Bethlehem, then he was told to flee to Egypt. So he fled to Egypt as a young child, then came back to Nazareth, and this is where he was raised. So Nazareth is his hometown. And so that's why he's going back to his own country. He goes in like he normally does in verse 2, and on the synagogues, on the Sabbath, he begins to teach. Now, we've already talked about this a little before, because back in Mark chapter 1, when he started teaching in the synagogues, it says this, They were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority, and not as the scribes. How did the scribes teach? Because the scribes just kind of repeated what everybody else said. The scribes just said, well, this is what the rabbis say, and we're just going to repeat man's words and wisdom. Here, when Jesus got up and actually started teaching, and actually started explaining things, They were astonished because he taught with authority. There's something about just hearing God's word being taught. And that's the thing that really hit me. I can remember when I first started coming out to Harvest 26 years ago. I grew up in a church that without a doubt taught the Bible. But when you came out and you just started seeing this verse by verse concept... Just the power of that. And I just absolutely love this idea of just going passage by passage. You know, I'm not saying I'm against topicals. Don't take it that way. But I believe there's power in just going chapter by chapter, verse by verse through the Bible and getting the whole context of God's Word. God's Word doesn't return void. So if it doesn't return void, why would we not want to do it all the time? Just stick in God's Word. So Jesus comes. They hear this teaching. And verse 2, where did he get these things? Where did he get this wisdom? How can he do these mighty works? Now here's the problem. Verse 3. Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? So they were offended at him. A lot of good stuff in that verse, folks. Let's break this down. Verse 3. First off, calling him the carpenter. Carpenter is an interesting term. He means he worked with wood. He worked with stone. He worked with brick. He worked with a lot of different materials. You know, the last recorded instance we have of Jesus and his childhood is at age 12. And then the next recorded instance of Jesus, he's around age 30. So what did he do for 18 years? We know what he did now. He was a carpenter. He went out there and he worked on things. He built things. Now, why did he do it? That's kind of interesting if you look in verse 3, how Joseph is not mentioned. A lot of people believe that Joseph probably died young into Christ's life. And so for those 18 years, he was probably helping take care of his family. And so therefore, when his younger brothers were old enough to take over, it looks like Jesus was then called into the public ministry that we have. So what did he do for those 18 years? Well, we know that he was a carpenter, working with stone, working with brick, working with wood. It's also a little bit of a put-down a little bit. Verse 3, is this not the carpenter? 
They're not looking at him as a rabbi. They're not looking at him as a teacher. They're not looking at him as the son of God. This is just Jesus, the carpenter. He built my table. He fixed my house. Where did he learn to teach like this? And please note also in verse 3, the son of Mary. That's a very interesting phrase to use. The son of Mary. It may mean once again that Joseph had been dead for a long time. And so he was referred to as the son of Mary. But you guys know this from reading the Bible. Most of the time, when you talk about somebody's lineage in the Bible, you always go the son of their father. Some people believe this may be a little bit of a shot at Jesus' supposed virgin birth, according to them. Because there's another reference in the book of John where it sounds like the people are kind of talking about his little beginning in his virgin birth. So is this a little shot at him? You're just a carpenter. You're just the son of Mary. We don't even know who your dad is. And I think it's important also to note, too, his brothers being listed. James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. And not only that, it mentions his sisters as well there in verse 3. Listen, I'm not trying to create a debate. Let's just stick to what the Bible says. There's absolutely nothing in the Bible about the perpetual virginity of Mary. It's just, it's just not in there. As far as we can tell, just taking the Bible, here it is. Joseph and Mary had children after Jesus. And we have their brothers mentioned here, and this is what the Bible says. So just be careful of ever adding something to the Bible that's not in there. Because right here it's listed, the idea of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. And we know a little bit about these guys. James ends up taking care of leading the early church. Now, as far as we can tell, they didn't believe in Christ as the Messiah while Jesus was on this earth. But as soon as he died, we see them now being part of the early church. It really then hit them. And James becomes a leader in the early church and looks like he goes and ends up writing the book of James. And not only that, you see Judas mentioned there as well. Judas was a pretty common name. This is not the Judas that betrayed him. Judas was also known as Jude. And this is the guy that probably wrote the book of Jude as well. So I think that's a pretty neat thing. I'm telling you right now, folks, you may have siblings that you have shared Christ with deeply, passionately, and you may have stopped and said, they have had to see my changed life in Christ. They have had to see how I've changed over the years. Jesus' own brothers did not believe until he died and rose again. His own brothers were not really there supporting this in much ways in any way whatsoever. Guys, it's neat to see how sometimes it takes time for these seeds to develop and grow. Never try to rush it. The Lord in His time brings it to attention, and at His time will bring it to light in the good soil. But I think it's interesting here, and it's also mentioning His sisters as well. But look at the end of verse 3. They were offended because of Him. Some translations refused to believe. It literally means tripped up, stumbled. They couldn't get past Jesus the human side, to see Jesus, the deity side. They couldn't. They're they're hearing him teach. Go back to verse 2. They heard him. They're astonished. How did he get this wisdom? How can he do these mighty works? This is just the carpenter. This is just the son of Mary. We know his brothers and sisters. And they heard this, and this tripped them up. This made them stumble, because the only thing they saw was the human side of Jesus, and they could not see the deity side of Jesus. So hence, verse 4, Christ then says, A prophet is not without honor except in his own country, among his own relatives, in his own house. Jesus said, You guys can't get past who I am that I grew up with to understand who I am as the Messiah. This happens a lot. A lot. It happens a lot as Christians. And you also see it happen a lot here in the Bible. So I'm going to go with this in two different directions here real quick. One that we deal with now 
and one understanding when it comes to the deity of Jesus. There's this ongoing little joke that we do at the pastor's conference, that these pastors come into the pastor's conference, and we just absolutely love them. You know, just they come up there and they teach, and you're just like, wow, these guys, you know, are amazing, and they're just so neat, they're so blessed. And those pastors will get up there saying how much they love coming and teaching at pastor's conferences. And the reason they love teaching at pastor's conferences is because when they come here, everybody loves them. They said they go back to their churches and no one likes them. Because a prophet is not without honor in his hometown. Now, this, this happens to us as humans, does it not? Moms, how often do your kids appreciate everything you do on a daily basis, right? prophet is not without honor except in his hometown. A lot of times we take for granted the day in, day out things. I remember one time there was this really big day of ministry. And ended up going up to Toledo, did an early morning uh, hospital visit, uh, surgery. Got back from Toledo. Ended up doing another visit to someone over on that side. So now had to go back to BG for something. And then while I was in BG, got a phone call that there was another individual from church that had a hospital issue. So I went back up to Toledo and did another long hospital visit. Got home, and I had this expectation of my wife being all done up and meeting me at the door and saying, thank you for all that you do and all this other type of stuff. And let's just put it this way, it didn't happen. And so I got in the house, and I was like, okay, what's going on here? You know, I'm going up to Toledo twice. I'm doing all these visits. Every time I go there, people are like, oh, pastor, it's so good to see you, whatever, and all this other type of stuff. I said, I get home, and I said, Dawn, there's nothing. Nothing. I said, what's going on here? And I just remember Dawn looking at me, and she goes, did you do all that for me, or did you do it for the Lord? I said, I did it for the Lord. She goes, then why do you want your praise from me? I tell you, I don't make up what Dawn's like, guys. I'm just telling you, that's what she's like. And it really hit me that I wanted honor in my hometown. It's like you're doing it for the Lord. You're not doing it for anything else. Just be careful chasing the pats on the back, folks. Just be careful chasing the pats on the back. Because there's a time where we do stuff and we want to be noticed and we want the expectation of people to see us. And to be quite honest, the people that see us most of the time, friends, family, spouses, kids, co-workers, they probably do take you for granted a little bit. Just like they took Jesus for granted a little bit. Did Jesus get offended and call fire down from heaven? No. He just basically states the fact. It's not going to happen. Now, this takes us into the second side of this point, is understanding the deity of Jesus. I will repeat this point again. They couldn't get past the human side of Christ to see the deity of him. And so, therefore, in 5 and 6, you see there's not a lot of miracles going on. And it's not because Jesus' power was limited. It was because of verse 6, their unbelief. I mean, think about this. Jesus goes to Galilee. He goes to Jerusalem. People are so amazed with him. People are coming from days away and coming and falling at his feet. We just, we just read about that last week. The woman, if I could just get to him and touch him. And the crowd is all around him. He goes to Nazareth. And it's like, Jesus is here. The person that raises the dead. The person that heals the sick. The person that gives sight to the blind. The person that casts out demons. We should go to him. Nah, it's just Jesus. I got one of his tables in my house. That's just Jesus, son of Mary. Yeah, I work with Joseph. It's just Jesus. Unbelief kept this town, Nazareth, from seeing God move. And, I, and this is why I wanted to go to Hebrews eleven six first, Guys, unbelief in your life is really going to limit how the Lord moves. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. 
For you, God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So if your prayer life is this whole hum, oh, Lord, I hope you take care of it, because I, I don't know, nothing ever works out for me. What do we learn from this passage right here? God's not going to say, oh, you don't believe I can move? Okay, well, then I'm going to do something just to prove to you. No. Jesus is not a 14-year-old boy that needs to prove how strong he is. He's God. If you don't believe he's going to move in your life, he's not going to move in your life just to prove that he can move in your life. And so what happens is people tell me all the time, oh, I've been praying about it and nothing changes. Well, let's just be honest. Are you diligently, faithfully seeking him or are you just kind of throwing out some half-hearted prayer? In the back of your mind, you're saying nothing ever works out for me. It's always bad. It's always glum. It's always this. Well, according to this right here, guess what Jesus is going to do? Verse 6, he marveled because of their unbelief and he went about the villages in a circuit teaching. He left. He left, folks. Because if they didn't believe that he was going to do a lot of mighty things, then why should he stay there to do anything? I think about the story of the rich young ruler, and you remember this. It's in the different gospel accounts. This man shows up at Jesus' feet, falls down, and he says, What must I do to be saved? And Jesus says, Go do this and do that, and basically he goes, Sell everything you have. And the Bible says the man walked away sorrowful because he had many possessions. And the man walked away because he really didn't want a relationship with Christ. He wanted everything the world had to offer, plus Jesus. And Jesus said, if you really want me, be willing to let go of everything. But that's not the point I'm bringing up here. The point is this. The man walked away. And what did Jesus do when the man walked away? He let him walk away. One of the things that I am wrong on is I am egotistical and prideful to think one more conversation with somebody and I can lead them to Christ. That marriage is falling apart. If I could just sit down with them, I could heal that marriage. Oh, that person's not saved. Oh, let me talk to them for a half hour. No. If they don't want the Lord, they don't want the Lord. Until their heart is open and ready for it, there's no reason to push it or force it. I see this with Christ right here. And this is a tough thing. You've got to let the Spirit lead. Sometimes you plant a seed and you just get out of the way. And you've got to trust the Holy Spirit takes it from there. Jesus right here didn't push it. Because in my mind, I want to say, Jesus, go do something. Prove to them. No, they had unbelief. They don't want it. And so much unbelief that take a look at this, verse 6. He marveled because of their unbelief. There's only two times in the Bible where it says that Jesus marveled over something. And this word marvel is a really deep word. It's not just, oh, that surprises me. This is something deep where it astonishes Christ. Can you imagine doing something... That makes Jesus stop and marvel. Only happened twice. Once, right here, because of their unbelief he marveled. The other one is in Matthew chapter 8, when the Roman centurion said, My servant is sick. And Jesus said, I'll come heal him. And the surgeon said, Don't, don't even come to my house. Just give the word. Give the word, and he can be healed. And Jesus said, marvel that there was not that faith in anywhere else in Israel, because the man that said that was the Gentile. So let me just put this into perspective for you. The two things that make Jesus marvel, one is unbelief, and one is belief. One is faith, and one is lack of faith. So therefore, when you have lack of faith and unbelief, Jesus marvels at that, saying, why don't you believe? And when you have faith, Jesus marvels at that, saying, that's what I like to see. Guys, it goes back to Hebrews 11, 6. Without faith, it's impossible to please Him. God is asking us to trust Him. God is asking us to say, Do you believe that I can move this mountain in your life? Because He can. Go with me to Psalm 78, please. Psalm 78. 
Actually, go to Psalm 78. Keep your hand there and then just back up a little bit to Psalm 75. I like to read a psalm every morning as part of my morning devotions. It's a great way to start the day of just praise, worship, and perspective in the Lord. So I was reading Psalm 75 the other day. I just want to look at one verse here, verse 1. Psalm 75, 1. It says, We give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks for your wondrous works to declare that your name is near. Do you have a time of praise and worship in your prayer life? There's a lot of us that have a whole lot of what is the Bible uses called supplication, where we're asking for things. We're asking for health. We're asking for wealth. We're asking for a good day at work. We're asking for traveling safety. We have no problem asking for things all the time. But do we have a time of just praise where you remember what God did? So I was reading through Psalm 75. We give thanks to you, God. We give thanks for your wondrous works. Declare that your name is near. And there's this ongoing theme of just telling everybody about what God has done. So what I did is, I just stopped and I just recently said, Lord, I want to thank you for everything you've done in my life right now. And I just went through this whole list in my mind. Then I thought, I don't want to forget anything. So I rewound the clock to last year at this time. Lord, what was I worked up about? What was I nervous about? What was I upset about that you moved mountains and took care of it? So I did that for 2018. Then I went back to 2017. Then 2016. Then 2015. And just said, Lord, I don't want to forget these things. That, that you did these things. And I just encourage you to every now and then stop and just say, Lord, I want to remember the wondrous works that you've done. I've told you before, I got this prayer journal where I write down my prayer requests. And I go back and then when God answers the prayers, I write the dates down to remember what he did and to give him the praise, honor, and glory. How often do we do this? We pray, we give it to God, and the next thing you know, we say, oh, Lord, thanks, and we move on. Remember his wondrous works. Because now, please go to Psalm 78. The flip side is this. When we don't have faith, it frustrates God. So therefore, when I walk in a state of unbelief, or if I walk in a state of lack of faith, I'm causing problems in my relationship with the Lord. Let me just make this point really clear to you. If you're one of those guys that, I don't know if the Lord can... Listen, guys, you're frustrating the creator of the universe. He doesn't like that. According to Hebrews eleven six, he wants to be pleased when we have faith in him. We just read in Mark 6 that in unbelief that he left. Take a look here now at Psalm 78, verse 12. Marvelous things he did in the sight of their fathers in the land of Egypt in the field of Zoan. Zoan is a plain on the other side of Egypt. So now this is the psalmist that says, we're going to talk about the marvelous things that God has done when when, um, Israel came out of Egypt. He divided the sea and caused them to pass through. He made the waters stand up like a heap. He parted the Red Sea. It's pretty impressive. In the daytime, he also led them with a cloud. And all the night with the light of fire. So the cloud watched over them in the day. Probably kept the desert sun off of them. The fire at night gave them light. Maybe gave them heat. Gave them safety and protection. Verse 15. He split the rocks in the wilderness. And gave them drink in the abundance like the depths. He also brought streams out of the rock. And caused waters to run down like rivers. We were joking about this a couple weeks ago. That when the rock brought forth water. In my mind I always had this little drinking fountain type idea. When you read these passages. You got to remember they're watering like a million people. It sounds like this rock, and there's another verse in the Bible that says the rock followed them, which is kind of a cool thing if you think about it, that when they set up camp, it sounds like all of a sudden instant streams of water. 
just going out so people could get water in the middle of the desert. That's amazing, folks. His marvelous works. Now, look at what happened, though. 17. But they sinned even more against him by rebelling against the Most High in the wilderness. And they tested God in their heart by asking for the food of their fancy. Yes, they spoke against God. They said, can God prepare a table in the wilderness? Behold, he struck the rocks, so the waters gushed out, and the streams overflowed. Can he give bread also? Can he provide meat for his people? It's not enough, Lord. The water's not enough. Now we want fancy food. 21. Therefore the Lord heard this and was what? Furious. Furious. When we're not content and we're not walking in faith, it makes God angry. It's not enough, Lord. Salvation wasn't enough. I mean, I know you saved me from the pit of hell and you gave me a new body, but I'm not happy with what's going on in my life and I don't have a problem telling you that. God doesn't like that. Well, God, I don't know if you can do it. I mean, look at verse 20. I mean, you did the rock thing, but you can't do the bread thing. You can't do this. God doesn't like that. Take a look at 21. So a fire was kindled against Jacob and anger also came up against Israel because they did not believe in God and did not trust in his salvation. Their lack of faith made God angry and furious. 23. Yet he had commanded the clouds above and opened the doors of heaven. He rained down manna on them to eat and given them the bread of heaven. Men ate angels' food. He sent them food to the full. Every morning you get up and there's breakfast, lunch, and dinner just outside. Just grab it, bring it in. That's not good enough. For 40 years he provided. It's not good enough. 26. He caused an east wind to blow in the heavens. And by his power he brought in the south wind. He also rained meat on them like dust. Feathered fowl like the sand of the seas. He brought them meat. He let them fall in the midst of their camp all around their dwellings. And they ate and were full. For he gave them their own desire. They were not deprived of their craving. And while the food was still in their mouths, the wrath of God came against them and slew the stoutest of them and struck down the choice men of Israel. In spite of this, they still sinned and did not believe in his wondrous works. Therefore, their days he consumed in futility and their years in fear. Guys, I read through this. And I read in Hebrews eleven six. I see Jesus in Mark 6. I go back and I read the account of this in Exodus. And what I come out of this is this. And this is what the Lord's been working on me this last year. It is a dangerous thing to take for granted everything God does in your life. And to not walk in faith. To not remember these wondrous works. To walk in this doubt. To walk in this thing of, oh, I don't know, God. If you haven't done enough, you haven't proven anything. Boy, oh boy, that's what the nation of Israel did in the wilderness. And it says right here that God was furious with them. I don't walk in this legalistic half to of, oh, Lord, I hope I remembered enough of everything you've done. But I try to have times where I stop and say, Lord, you moved. You answered. I thank you. Help me never to forget these things. Because I don't want to walk in unbelief. I don't want to walk in lack of faith. And I want to do anything that pleases you. I want you to marvel at my faith. Like the Roman centurion. Not marvel at my unbelief. I want my prayers to be prayers of faith. Not prayers of, oh, I hope so. Because I serve a pretty mighty God. That is able to do exceedingly abundantly all that we say or think. According to Ephesians 3. And according to Romans 8. That I'm more than a conqueror in Christ Jesus. So I want that faith to be there. And what I see here in Mark 6, 
these people couldn't get past the human side of Jesus to see the deity of Jesus, and their unbelief got them in trouble. And it's the same thing that happened to Israel as well. Now, we're going to get to a practical application here of putting this faith into action in verses 7 through 13. But any quick questions about anything so far about faith and understanding? John. You know, it could be, but it's hard to say because the Holy Spirit did not come until the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And what we do know is this, that in Acts chapter 1, before the Holy Spirit came, it says in Acts 1.14, These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. So we know his brothers are already attending prayer service before Pentecost, which only would have been 40 days after, 40, 50 days after. So, anybody else got any questions here about faith before we move on? All right, now, faith in action. Take a look at verse 7. He called the twelve to himself and began to send them out two by two and gave them power over unclean spirits. He commanded them to take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bag, no bread, no copper in their money belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. He said to them, whatever place you enter a house, stay there till you depart from that place. And whoever will not receive you nor hear you when you depart from there, shake off the dust under your feet as a testimony against them. As surely I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in that day of judgment than for that city. So they went out and preached the people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Continuing our idea of faith here, this is the first missionary journey of these disciples. Okay, So this is their first missions trip. Let's learn about missions trips as we study this out. What do we see? First off in verse 7, sent them out two by two. This is something you see also happening in the book of Acts. Paul usually went with the traveling companion. I know in doing ministry, having one other person with me when I go do a home visit, a hospital visit, or an in-depth conversation, it's priceless. It really honestly is. You know, since Richard retired a year ago, one of the things I've missed the most is having that other person of just accountability and to be able to do this type of stuff with. Uh, you know, pray the Lord just raises up a Timothy or a Joshua. But it is amazing having two by two. There's a reason why the Lord sent them out in groups of two. Please also note in verse 7, gave them power over unclean spirits. John 15, John 15 makes it very clear in verse 5 that you can do nothing apart from Christ. Nothing. Guess what nothing means? It means nothing. I don't know where we got this idea that I got this one, Lord. Lord, I've taught over Mark 6 before. I got this one. I mean, I'll do a token prayer before I teach it, but I'm good. I've shared my faith a hundred times before. I don't really need to be prayed up. I've gone to this job. I've been working at this job for 25 years. I don't need to pray before I go into work. I know everything about it. Now, you may not be saying that, but that's what's happening by our lack of faith and lack of unbel- in our unbelief, I should say. It's a very prideful, egotistical thing. I got this one. I think it's important to remember that you have nothing apart from Jesus Christ. And when you constantly walk in the state of dependence with him, it empowers you. See, this is the point of this first missionary trip. Can you imagine this missionary journey? This is about the first time the disciples have been apart from Jesus. I mean, they, they love being around Jesus. Who would not love to be around Jesus? If you're hungry, he just makes food. He's raising dead people. He's casting out demons. He's heal- I mean, every day it's an adventure. And so now he says what? You guys need to go by yourself for a while. Okay, we can do this. We can do this. I mean, do you remember being back in grade school when you had to partner up? And there were certain people you want to be with? And there are certain people you don't want to be with? I mean, don't you think the disciples did that? Oh, I hope I don't get Peter. You know what I mean? That they didn't want to be with somebody? 
I wonder if Jesus picked names. I don't know. I'd just like to have seen that. So he sends them on groups of two. And now here's their marching orders. Verse 8. Take a staff with you. It's pretty rocky terrain over there in Israel. Make sure you got a staff. Um, but no bag, no bread, no money. Okay, this is the worst pre-missions trip I've ever seen. No bag, no bread, no money. Yeah, you're allowed to wear sandals, but don't take two tunics. You know, we went down to Mexico last year for a few weeks. And the amount of prep we put into that. I'm trying to imagine if I would go to Dawn and say, Dawn, I've really been praying about it. The Lord said to take our passports, and that's it. She wouldn't have gone. Think about this, folks. This is where faith kicks in. How often do we have to have every I dotted, every T crossed, Lord, please explain to me every point, and then I will gladly walk in obedience. That's not faith. That's not faith in any way whatsoever. I heard this great teaching one time from John Corson where he says, so many of you are stuck at point A, and you won't go to point B. And the reason you won't go to point B is because you have to go to point B in faith, and God will only reveal point B until you're willing in faith to do it. Please remember the crossing of the Jordan. The Jordan did not cross until the priests put their foot in the water. If your personality is, Lord, I'll do whatever you want me to do as soon as you reveal it to me and all the details, then you're not going to probably have anything revealed. Sometimes you just got to trust him and say, you know what? The Lord's leading me in faith. I'm going to do this. And I'm not going to take the bag. I'm not going to take the bread. And I'm not going to take the money. And I know it makes no sense in any way whatsoever. What is Jesus doing to them? He's teaching them to rely on him. He's teaching them to rely on faith. Not in this. Can you imagine if he said, okay, everybody, before I send you out, does everybody got at least 20 drachmas with you? Okay, good. Everybody, you got at least a three-day supply of bread? Let me see it, right? Okay, everybody, you got an extra pair of sandals and an extra coat? No, he says, take your sandals, take your staff, and go. Faith, folks. The Lord sometimes, some of you here tonight, He is stripping you of everything but Him to teach you, to remind you to trust in Him. And not only that, take a look at 10. Whatever house you go in, you stay at that house. There are no upgrades on this missions trip. Do you realize how Christians, how often we want to upgrade? Then one of the other gospel accounts, it says, whatever house accepts you, you stay at that house for the rest of the time in that area. So you get accepted by this dear, sweet widow that, that just basically has the creakiest bed and the worst mattress, and that's all she's got. Take it. And now two days later, the person with the mansion comes and says, Hey, why don't you come stay with me? Nope. In faith, you stay where you're at. How often in this world are we always looking for an upgrade? We're in a wonderful job. Great hours with the family. Pays all the bills. But you know what? There's something better over there. I'm going to look into it. Just be careful with that. I'm not saying the Lord's not in it, but just be careful. I hear this about a lot with pastors. They're really blessed in a church, but then a, a bigger church opens up, a better church with more of this and more of that. Why? If the Lord's led you, the Lord's led you. If not, just stay where the God's planted you. We have this tendency as humans to always want the next best, greatest thing. This one thing that we've done is uh, Don and I have been married 22 years. And one of the first things that we did, because, you know, this is really important when we got married, one of the first items we purchased was a television. Okay? Because you've got to have a television, right? So the amount of money that we had budgeted for a television, 
It was a 27-inch television. Now, back then, that was a great television, 27 inches. This is what I've done every time our television died. Every time my television dies, I take the exact same amount of money that I spent 23 years ago on the 27-inch television, and I say I will not spend more than that money. And that whatever size I can get for that is what I get now. So you know how much that exact amount of money buys you today? Now, the last television we bought, which is probably four or five years ago, now we're up to a 40-inch television because it's the exact same amount of money. Now, there's a few things in this world that I am tempted by in the flesh, and I will share this with you. Televisions. I love TVs. If I was younger, Dawn could go sit me in front of the TVs at Walmart, and I wouldn't move for a half hour. I love them. I love going into Best Buy. I love going into ABC Warehouse. I will never buy anything there. I just want to look at the televisions. And I look at these televisions now that are 65 inches, 70 inches, and there's part of my flesh that loves that and wants that. Now, what would that television look like in my living room? It would look completely, utterly out of place. Plus, I have two 20-month-old twins. I would have handprints all over it. I have five boys that like to throw things in that room. I always tell my boys this. I love you, but I love my television more. And if you break my television, I will not forgive you. You can ask them. Those are the things I tell them. I always want to upgrade it. But my 40-inch television does exactly what I need it to do. Be careful with the desire in the flesh to always want something bigger and better. That's why in verse 10, whatever house takes you, you just stay there, folks. Contentment right there. And if they will not hear you, verse 11, shake the dust off your feet and move on. I'm still learning this one, folks. Still learning this one. Share Christ. They reject. I need to let it go and move on. That's hard. I told you earlier in the lesson, there's a pride. And, oh, I, I can get this one, Lord. Lord, I know your Holy Spirit's not leading them right now, but just let me take a shot at it. How arrogant. How prideful. I have to learn to be able to sometimes say, I presented the gospel. They're not interested. I just got to go. And wait for another season to pop up and pray for another season. And what's the message they presented in verse 12? Repent. Repent. Literally means change one's mind. Listen, I am all for telling everybody how much Jesus loves them. I am all for telling everybody about the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ, the goodness of God, the Bible says, leads to repentance. But here's the deal. Unless I tell you the bad news, the good news means nothing to you. So if I just go present heaven to you, and if I just go present love to you, I also got to present the flip side of the coin. Hell. I got to present the flip side of the coin. Your sin keeps you from God. That's the point of repenting. And so when I go present the gospel, I need to make sure that both sides of the coin are presented. Love, grace, mercy, heaven, and the reality of hell and sin. I have to present both sides of it. That's what the deal with repenting is. So often I see people present Jesus like this. Oh, Jesus just loves you. Oh, that's great. Oh, and Jesus has a home prepared for you in heaven. That's great. He wants you there. Sounds great. Do you want Jesus? Sure. Oh, amen, you're saved. Great. What am I saved from? I didn't tell you the other side of the coin. You're a sinner. You're wrong. Your sin has kept you from a holy God and you're destined for hell. Whoa, hold on a second now. Don't call me a sinner. See, unless you present both sides of the coin, are they really getting the full gospel message? That's why they also need to tell people to repent. 
Now, I got one more point about this before we move on. I'm running out of time, but I got to share this with you. Um, go with me now real quick to uh, Luke. Um, I got to give you the reference here, though, don't I? Hold on one second. Let me find it. Let's go to Luke. Luke uh, 22, please. Apologize for that. I didn't write down the reference. Luke 22. Now, the reason I give you this reference as well, because I want to make sure we present both sides of this point. Their first missionary journey was a missionary journey of faith. Faith. Now what happens on the second missionary journey? This is the day before Jesus dies on the cross. Now look what he tells them in Luke 22, 35. He said to them, When I sent you without money, bag, knapsack, and sandals, did you lack anything? They said nothing. See, he gave them the first missionary journey to be a missionary journey of faith for them to realize he provided all of our needs. So what happened the second time? Now I'm 36. And he said to them, But now he was money bag, let him take it. Likewise, a knapsack. And he was no sword. Let him sell what he has, his garment, and buy one. For I say to you that this which is written must be accomplished in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors for the things concerning me have an end. So they said, look, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. I find this interesting. On the second time he sent them out, he said, guess what, guys? Now you take your bag. Now you take your money. Now you take your supplies. He had to teach them the first time to walk in faith. He had to. And then the next time he sent them out, he said, okay, now walk in faith. And here's also the wisdom of what you need to do as you go prepare for things. Guys, this is a great teaching point. The Lord, a lot of times, the first time he asks you to do something, he says, just trust me. If you can't get past that first one, you're never going to get to B, C, D. And some of you have been stuck in this spiritual spot for maybe years or decades. Why? Because you're not willing yet to walk out in faith. You're not. God says, you've got to trust me first. And once you trust me in faith, then we can move on. And I'm just telling you, if you're here tonight, go back to Hebrews 11:6. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. Because he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. If there's something the Lord is laying on your heart and you're dragging your feet on it, in faith, you've got to say, Lord, I trust you on this. Just like he did with the first missionary journey for these disciples. He, they had to trust that he'd provide everything. And now the second time he says, hey, did you lack anything? They said, no. He says, that's right. Because I provided. I have things in the back of my mind, and details don't matter, of where the Lord has done some miraculous things and providing for me. And if I go do something and my fear starts to rise up and my lack of faith, I just go, oh, Lord, I remember this. Sometimes it's just one word I say to myself. This. Because the Lord took care of that. Lord, Lord, what about this? Lord, you were faithful to get me through that. You were faithful to get me through that. So since you were faithful to get me through that, you're going to be faithful to get me through this. And I remember your marvelous works. But the Lord had to teach me to walk in faith. Because when he taught me to walk in faith, now I can just say, Lord, you've already proven it. I don't have to, I, I just trust you. Check your prayer life. Is there a time of faith in your prayer life? Is there a time of remembering his marvelous works like we read in Psalm 75? Are you diligently seeking him in faith? He's a rewarder of those that do. Do you realize without faith it's impossible to please him? And that's why he left Nazareth. Unbelief. You guys don't want me. That's why with the disciples he sent them on the first missionary journey. Trust me to prove that he could do it. Time does not permit, and I really hate this, and I'm going to pray about it, and we may come back next week, because I don't want to skip over 13 about the anointing with oil, many who are sick, because that goes into James chapter 5. 
um, but it does not time permit us, does not permit us to do this tonight because it's after 8 o'clock there. Key thing, though, is Hebrews 11.6, faith. Let that sink into your heart here, folks. Hey, any final quick questions to clarify anything before I let you go? It's after 8. Yeah. That's an interesting question because uh, in the New Testament, when you see in the book of Acts, you see a lot of laying on hands. But yet when he breathed on them at the end of Luke, that's how they received the Holy Spirit. So I'm going to go with this route. If I had to be picked down, what does it mean to give them power? If I had to say, probably prayed over them, laid hands on them. That's my opinion. But at the same time, if the Bible wanted us to know exactly what he did, that would have told us. So somehow it gave them power and they knew it. And I, it goes back to that point. Unless God gives you the power, what are we supposed to do? We can't do anything. Good question, though. Any other quick clarifying questions before we go? All right. Hey, thanks for letting us get out a little late. If you guys don't mind standing here. I'm a firm believer in praying the scriptures. And I just want to pray this verse over us. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Lord, that's what we want. We want to diligently seek you. We want to walk in your reward. We must believe. Lord, help us. I just think of that simple prayer. Lord, help my unbelief. If there's someone here tonight struggling with unbelief, Lord, help their unbelief. Your word is powerful, and your word, it says, by faith we believe. Lord, help us to walk in that faith. We thank you for being such a good God in your name. Amen. You guys have a good week, and God bless.